1: All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome to this edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're going to be talking today about a topic that um, affects all of us, and um that you may well have been noticing and thinking about on your own and you know will will uh, feel validated by some of the things that we're going to be talking about we're talking about the betrayal of manhood and how pop culture's portrayal of men who reflect the boys will be boys mentality affect how real men act in real life and with me to discuss all of this is Dr. Paul Dunyon. He is the co-founder of Boys to Men, which is an organization that mentors teen boys, and he's the leader of Connecticut Men's Gathering. And uh, obviously this is a a subject that he has been spending a lot of time and and doing a lot of work in um, and thinking about, of course, in regard to himself, specifically as well growing up and becoming a man and of course that's the flip side of this Uh, it's not only pop culture that reflects the boys will be boys mentality but also that reflects a caricature of manhood what is a man and that this makes men feel inadequate which kind of feeds these two things feed into each other and cause all kinds of problems in relationships and parenting and ambition and um a lot of things that are going violence, a lot of things that are going wrong with the world. So Paul, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Um I want to uh why don't we start as you may know, I usually start by having my guests um sit on Dr. Car- or lay down actually on Dr. Carroll's couch. <laughs> and um uh, explore their own reasons for wanting to go... I mean, this was something that I used to be interested in when I was in elementary school. We used to write book reports. I'd always want to know why the author wrote about what he wrote about, whether it was a, a nonfiction book or a fiction book. Uh, I was always interested in the mind of the writer. So, <laughs> I still am. <laughs> and, and particularly in regard to this topic, it makes me um, interested, and I'm sure my listeners are interested, in how this is something that you... Chose to devote a lot of your life to.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, well, it actually probably begins as a as a boy. Uh, every Sunday afternoon, around four o'clock, the my Irish family would gather at my grandmother's house, and the women were in the uh, kitchen, and the men gathered in the living room, and uh, there were stories being told uh, throughout the afternoon, and. um I was deeply touched as a five, six, seven, eight, nine year old boy about the camaraderie of males and what it meant for them to bond and come together, uh, support one another. Uh, I think that early there was a, there was an affinity with the idea that males could come together for some common cause, which got reinforced later on on athletic teams. I think it reached a much deeper level in 1979 when I had a mentor who took very seriously the idea that men could be up to the business of sabotaging their own maturation. And he encouraged me to attend this retreat run run by, facilitated by a Jungian therapist who was focusing on that very issue? Well, how do men get to the point where they are sabotaging their own maturity? And that got me going.
4: Hmm. That's
2: very interesting. Um, so basically, that's what that, you know what you've um, been following through in terms of thinking more about it and and doing research in it, and also as uh, co-founding the Boys to Men.
3: Yes, yeah, and I, and I think one of the uh, one of the guiding uh, energies for me was I think it was nineteen seventy six reading Herb Goldberg's book, The Hazards of Being Male, deeply touched me, and uh, shortly after that, in seventy nine, I began facilitating some groups, and then in nineteen ninety two, founded the Connecticut Men's Gathering, and since then, probably seven or eight thousand men have come through um, that program.
2: Huh. And is there? Uh, are you planning on starting them in other states, or
3: no? We've just been doing it in Connecticut. Hmm.
2: So, yeah. so, so ladies, if you want to find a mature man, go to Connecticut.
4: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, okay. Um, so, why don't you give us some examples about this um, about this premise of how the uh, the pop culture is facilitating or
3: yeah I think one of, the, one of the starting points I like is where it's, what it's not doing there's a, there's a really poignant scene from a film called The Emerald Forest which is based on a true story of a boy I think the age of four or five whose father was building a dam in Brazil and he wandered away into the jungle and was eventually raised by indigenous folks in the jungle and there's a scene from this film when he, when he becomes a teenager, he's, he's in a stream splashing water and flirting with the girls. And shortly after that, he's flanked by a group of elders, male elders dressed in their ritualistic garb. And the chief says, boy, it's time for you to die. Huh. That's a really powerful image. Because what it suggests is that that culture held on some level, probably sacred, that there had to be a time when boyhood would be welcome to die so that something larger, uh, i.e. adulthood or manhood, could be born. And we don't really have that in this culture. There's... There's not a time uh, typically when a male will hear from elders uh it's time for something boyish to begin dying. And obviously there are ri- the indigenous folks had rituals to support that, but I typically see it as a welcome, a welcome into that dying process. In fact, several men and myself just a month ago initiated an 18-year-old boy in our community. And one of the things uh, I said to that young man was that although we're having a ritual here to symbolize that uh, it's time to take serious the death of some real boyish tendencies that won't serve you or the people you love, we're really talking about a welcome. It's a welcoming into that death process and into the birthing process gradually of manhood.
2: Okay, what do you mean, what do you do to initiate a boy?
3: Well, in this initiation, we were in a traditional um, sweat lodge, Hmm. and the elder men uh, uh, spoke about their challenges of, uh, of, of their own maturation, where they have fumbled, where they have been challenged, regrets they had uh, about uh, any way they might have uh, been attached to remaining infantile in any way whatsoever. And then there, there's well-wishing, and at the end there's also a commitment that that young man can turn to any of those men for support as he feels challenged along the way.
2: Hmm. So it's it's like a ceremony.
3: It is a ceremony. and uh, it, It's a welcome into take this ceremony into real life, and so when you have questions or you feel lost, uh, you, there are men who have promised to support you along the way.
4: So is
2: this part of the Boys to Men organization?
3: Yeah, that's, we've, we've did, we did the same thing in Boys to Men. We created ceremony for them also. They would come into that group at 14 years old, and then typically around 17 or 18 there would be this initiation.
2: Huh. and it doesn't include cutting off any body parts, does
4: it?
3: No, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't. But oftentimes it th- did include some very challenging questions uh, about hurt and shame and being lost and being confused, uh, about loss, asking boys to face what have been their losses.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, moving them to deeper and more meaningful questions about life as opposed to the the, the girl they're going to date this weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah,
4: Well, I
2: know, you know, this um, problem, of, I mean, this is, I think you would agree that this is a growing problem of men feeling lost, men feeling, uh, you know, roles have changed. I mean, I... <laughs> I uh, blame a lot on uh, feminism and the women's movement and, and how that kind of overreached and castrated men, not necessarily literally, mm-hmm. um, and, and left men lost and, and not feeling, um, not knowing their roles, not, knowing, not feeling strong or powerful or um, competing, of course, with women in, the, in jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, have women... Uh, you know, I, I mean, I see in so many different aspects of what I do as a psychiatrist, mm. not only in terms of, you know, patients, but mm-hmm. um, in, in my, the books that I write and in um, the show that I'm a consultant on called Paternity Court, um, where all, there is so much that has to do with father, men, um, fathers, Mm-hmm. Leaving families, like feeling useless, feeling yes. like an, an append, a useless appendage, yes. and um, and just kind of deserting any kind of um, the kinds of roles they had before as the breadwinner or as the head of the household. And I'm not trying saying we should go back to the '50s, but I mean, um, there's it, there's been a swing too far to the other to the other side, and so many children uh, in homes. There are so many single, you know, divorced homes, single mothers. Mm-hmm. And children um, mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: who are growing up missing uh mm-hmm. their fathers and therefore you know perpetuating this problem from one generation to the next
4: mm-hmm.
2: and and getting into all kinds of problems, from girls, teen girls, sexting boys because they're mm-hmm. so desperate for male mm-hmm. attention, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. boys g- having babies all over the place, you know um ruining their lives essentially. Yep because of not using condoms and having all these babies that they then have to support and then they're unemployed or they have, you know, really low-paying jobs. Their lives are ruined.
3: Right. And I think one of the challenges has been uh, fathers who haven't been fathered struggle to father. Yes. I mean, there's there's not much of a map. I can remember... My children, years ago, saying to me, they wanted me to... I saw clients every Thursday evening, and they said, you know, could you stop seeing clients at, at 8 o'clock? And I said, well, what do you want me to do? They wanted me to watch uh, Michael J. Fox, and I think it was called Family Ties. Uh
2: huh. And Wait. then
3: right after that was the Cosby Show. <laughs> and my Wait. kids wanted me to come and watch that. So I stopped my work at that point, 8 o'clock, and I joined them. Well, I was astounded to find out that in both shows... Quite often, the father was depicted as a buffoon,
4: uh huh,
3: needing guidance around what to eat, <laughs> how to dress, when to rest. There was a significant maternal dynamic between his wife and himself.
2: Well, when Not, we, get, we need to take a break now, but when we get back, um, you can tell us about why you think they wanted you to watch those shows besides having your company. We right. need to take a break. My ga- guest is Dr. Paul Dunyon. And we're talking today about the betrayal of manhood. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about the betrayal of manhood with my guest, Dr. Paul Dunyon. And I'll be giving you his uh, information and his name from his books, and you can find all that out. Or you can go go look for those things after the show, after you listen to us. (laughs) Um, Because all of this is really, you know, what you're saying is really interesting. And you were just telling us the story about Mm how um, your children wanted you to come home, Mm -hmm. and you, like a good daddy did, uh, stopped seeing patients at 8 o'clock so you could come home and watch... Cosby and Family Ties, and what did you find that the reason was for why they wanted you to do that besides your companionship?
3: I mean, I think they really enjoyed the uh, the family thing. I mean, to see families and the, the level of writing, of course, was very, very funny in both shows. So I think they enjoyed that. Um, I was having, they were having fun. My kids were having fun. I was having a problem
4: mm-hmm. with
3: how much their fathers were actually the sons, of their wives, mm. and what I began noticing in my own practice when I started when I was doing couples therapy, probably nine out of ten mm. couples I saw had the same dynamic going on,
4: mm.
3: where the 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 male was taking his his cues of how to be a person uh, from his wife, and um, my I got very curious about how could male, lack of male emotional maturity be sustained all by itself. That is, how could men pull that off all by themselves? And in some of my writing, what I began to write about was that there had to be a level of collusion and, from women. And once what I started noticing was that many of the women that I was working with at the time had settled into being needed by the male, significant male in their life. They had given up, actually, the notion of being loved. And there was a perfect setup for the dance to begin to sustain male uh, immaturity.
2: So wait a second. Giving up the notion of being loved, the women, yes. giving up the notion of being loved for the security of, of making the man dependent upon
4: them?
3: I think there's a sense of security, uh, a, a prevention of abandonment,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: probably the modeling they receive from their own mothers. Like, this is as good as it gets. You get A ma- significant male will depend on you, but the idea that you're going to be loved may not be an option here. I mean, I've, I mean I've, seen, I've seen women get loved by men, but I would say the other theme has been, in my 30 years of practice, a predominant theme of women being needed.
2: Hmm. Well, you know, you know, that's interesting because, um, I mean, yes, I think there is, uh, you know, because of this, of this lack, I actually, um, I, two of my books are, the first one was Bad Boys, Why We Love Them, How to Live With Them, and When to Leave Them, uh-huh. and the second one is, um, the most recent one is Bad Girls, Why Men Love Them, and How Good Girls Can Learn Their Secrets. Uh And in Bad Boys, I talk about uh, the dysfunctional relationships that women have with their fathers and how each type of dysfunction leads them to one of the 12 types of bad boys. Uh And in Bad Girls, I take it further and talk about how once these women have been hurt by bad boys, they give up feeling that they're ever going to be loved. Right. And then instead, now it is the other twist, instead... Well, I mean, there's the one thing, some of them just uh, hide in the closet and give up because they don't want to be hurt anymore. Right, right. But others become bad girls, and that is that they give up expecting to ever be loved because their father never really showed them love. Right. And um, instead, they, get, they want to use men um, mm-hmm. for something, so like, mm-hmm. for example, uh, gold diggers or... Mm-hmm um merit, um hunt, husband hunter and trappers you know <laughs> each kind of each 12 different kinds of bad girls
3: yeah so yeah.
2: um i mean there it does seem to be this epidemic of women giving up on love
3: uh yeah but, uh, yes i've seen it in an immense way actually and, and and i my reaction is a lot of sadness about it yeah because b- both genders lose yeah I mean, typically what i say to the women i work with when you expect to be loved, you're not just getting behind yourself, you're also calling the man in your life in your life to something deeper and more sustainable. Yes. And he may protest, he may be confused, he may be disoriented, but he's getting a call to something a heck of a lot more meaningful.
2: Yes, and of course this all does go, trace, traces back to this lack of, of fathers altogether, or the lack of good fathering, the lack of fathers making um, their little girls feel loved. So, t- tell us more about how you think pop culture is responsible for this. What are some other examples?
3: Yeah, one of the examples that really got me going some time ago was a beer commercial. Man and woman are in, the, and starts off in this clip. They're watching television together. His cell phone rings. He answers it. He says to the female. Bobby needs to vent. She says to him, oh, go to him. Next clip, he's knocking on the door of Bobby's apartment with a 12-pack of beer in his arms. The door opens up. Bobby and he are doing a high five, and they yell, let's vent.
4: <laughs>
3: Next scene, they're watching a football game, drinking beer. His cell phone goes comes rings again, and he answers it and says to her, Bobby's still venting. Huh. There's an incredible endorsement there of deceit, lying, uh, exploiting the sensitivity of a female regarding camaraderie and friendship, and the notion that she understands emotional support, and he's going to uh, distort that and exploit it in some way. Um, Those are sad commentaries. There's another one of a fast food chain, and uh, again, male and female at a table eating. The female says, I can't believe what my sister's boyfriend just said to her, that every Sunday he's he's definitely going to watch football. And her companion in the music, her companion is staring out into space like searching for the right thing to say. And so he looks at her and says, what a jerk. (laughs) <laughs> Which, of course, isn't his truth whatsoever. Right. So there, are endless depictions. There's another one of a cell phone commercial where they're in a, a, again, a heterosexual couple in a restaurant dining. He keeps looking down at his lap at ball scores hmm. on a, on his phone, and she says, "You're not looking at." Oh, no, 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 I'm not looking at you know.
4: Hmm. There's
3: this constant promotion that uh, lying is okay. And what catches my interest about that is that it lying into see is somewhat of a natural phenomenon as a male moves into pubescence. That is, especially to his mom, where the challenge of an adolescent boy is how to claim his emerging sexuality and be a woman's son. That's not easy for most hmm. males. And they tend to stop being... Uh, somewhat clandestine and backing off of their mother a bit. And here we have depictions of allegedly grown men doing the same thing with their female partners.
4: Mm. Yeah.
3: It feels dangerous to me. At least dangerous.
4: Well,
2: you know, there are so many things, even on a, a, a societal and a national Scale that relate to this. That relate to the powerlessness that men feel. Right. And even like you know, just right. the other day, the um, the mall shooting in New Jersey, and yes, I mean, there yes. are shootings all over the place these days. Yes. It's like every day there's someplace else. Yes. I, I, go ahead. Well, I mean, how do you relate it to what we're talking about?
3: Well, I think I relate it to to my experience is the the typical male that I work with is incredibly confused and carrying all kinds of distortions regarding personal empowerment I mean he he can typically buy into some cultural mandates around power like good job uh, good bank account uh, good neighborhood but in terms of what actually is going to constitute personal empowerment there's tremendous confusion And I think some of the, I mean, my hunch is a lot of the confusion comes from there were any elders. I mean, a couple of colleagues of mine who work in the local prison system said to me one day, do you know how uh, it became popular for uh, teenage boys to uh, wear their pants so low, uh, right below their hips? I said, no. He said, in prisons, uh, in lockdown, they take belts away and the pants fall. hmm and I've that kind of longing for community, I mean, to use a prison mm. as a model of males coming together communally, I believe speaks to an incredible hunger on behalf of boys and confusion about, well, what the heck does authentic male community look like? It's, it's like they know they need it. I mean, they join gangs and... And basically, reproduce what happens in indigenous cultures. They get yeah. colors, they get challenges, yes. they get initiated. We found in uh, in our mentoring community that the hunger for male elders that would welcome them into a community was just astounding.
2: Yes, I mean it's the same way that uh, that the lack of male elders. Affects boys. I mean, it affects boys in, in that way, and then it affects girls in the other way that we were just talking about. Right. Um, I know. So, where are all these male elders? I mean, that's the thing. It's not like they're off doing anything terribly productive. I mean, most of these people are lost.
3: Right. I mean, the good news is that there is a, there's a, there's an evolving uh, commitment to mentoring, I think, now in the country, around the country.
4: Uh-huh. Uh,
3: male communities are springing up for teenage boys. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, responding to the need uh, completely, but certainly there's at least a beginning place.
4: Well,
2: I mean, I was mentioning that I'm the consultant to this television show, Paternity Court, yeah, and um, both there is such a, a consistent pattern that both the men who wind up you know being the potential fathers and not knowing and already having um, countless other children that they have uh, are probably the father of um and women, you know, having all these children, not protecting themselves and and right. having children and even some of them uh doing it on purpose as a way of supporting themselves. It's a new <laughs> You right. don't have to go to school or college or anything, you just keep having more children and try to you have to be clever about trying to pick men who you think might be able to support them. But right. um but it's real and it's real it's not that these people are it's just that they're lost because they haven't had these um primarily Fathers who have the, who have taught the men, you know, what kinds of women you what you're supposed to do when you grow up, and right. and, and, and same right. thing for the women, taught them to value themselves. Right. And it's just um it's 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 just a very serious problem. And I'm hearing a I'm hearing music, which is another serious problem. We need to take another break. Okay. My guest is Dr. Paul Dunyon. He is the author of several books. One of them is called Dare to Grow Up. Another one is called The Novice Mystic. And um, we will be right back talking about the betrayal of manhood. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
5: We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live
2: Dr. Paul Dunyon. He is the author of Dare to Grow Up and also his latest book, The Path of the Novice Mystic. So um, during the break we were talking about, uh, he was talking about how uh, he, in his recent research for that book he's come across some interesting uh, connections to between manhood and sociopathy. So Paul, tell us about that.
3: Yeah, here's some characteristics that are typical of uh, sociopaths. There's a kind of emotional poverty that limits the range and depth of feeling, which is typically advocated for uh, manhood in the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an ongoing and excessive need for excitement, to live at the edge where the action is, mm. w- which we encourage for men. Uh, uh, the sociopaths are often witty, articulate, amusing, entertaining, uh, have uh, quick and clever comebacks. Uh, tell unlikely and convincing stories that cast them in a good light, always encouraged in terms of men.
2: Uh-huh. Well, when you uh, say inc- you're talking about encouraged by pop
4: culture?
3: Encouraged by, uh, we're impressed by it.
4: Uh-huh.
2: We're,
3: yeah, we're impressed by this kind of persona who seems to have it all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, psychopaths come across with arrogance, shameless, do- and domineering. Uh, they can't really get into the skin of other people empathically. The best they can get is get an intellectual sense of what's happening to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lack remorse and guilt. Uh, shrugging off personal responsibility is easy. Uh, they're adept at being deceitful and manipulative. And uh, they don't, typically weigh out the pros and cons of their behavior, given how injurious their be- actions might be to others. Th- these characteristics almost become like hallmarks of successful, uh, powerful men.
2: Yes, cool men.
3: Cool men. It's like, right, cool men who will probably won't understand, for example, the nature of stewardship at all. Mm-hmm and taking responsibility for their communities.
2: You know, as you're saying that, it makes me think of um, one of the examples of of uh, pop culture's portrayal of these boys boys-will-be-boys mm-hmm. um, and sociopaths. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, two and a half men. That's, um, I, I, that's one of the... Well, two and a half men with Charlie Sheen. Um, not as good with Ashton Kutcher, but Charlie mm-hmm. Sheen... Mm-hmm. Um, in real life and in the sh- on the show, mm-hmm. um, is the epitome of what you're talking about, and what's mm-hmm. it, you know it, that is an example of. I mean, when people watch that show, there's mm-hmm. Charlie Sheen, and then there's he lives with his brother, mm-hmm. and any any young man watching that show would undoubtedly want to be the Charlie Sheen character. Right. That's the guy who gets all the women, who's incredibly charming, who has a lot of the characteristics that you were just talking about. Yeah. he, he drinks too much, he, he hardly works because he, he writes jingles and he gets paid you know for advert for commercials, and he right. gets paid a lot of money. It's like everything he does turns to gold and with very little effort, and instead you see him mostly at his Malibu beach house um, entertaining strippers <laughs> or right. girlfriends or or, or or that's the same thing. Right. Um, And so it's like the ideal life. And then his brother, who did everything by the book, he's a chiropractor in the valley. Well, I don't know. For people who don't live in Los Angeles, I don't know. You know, that's kind of like... um, um, It's just like he, he was married, he's divorced um Charlie was never married he just has a string of girlfriends one after the other he's never lacking for girlfriends mm. and and so you know you can see these two contra- contrasting ways of being as a man right and there's no doubt that the Charlie Sheen character um, is a lot more appealing than doing things, you know, studying, having a career, um, tr- being trying to be a good father, uh, trying to be a good husband. But his wife didn't work out. His wife just put him down and then divorced him. I mean, you know, it's it, it's it totally. Um, it, it's like the classic example of what. Um, Boy, young boys and men are being taught these days, and, and, and you know it, goes, it, it it follows from what we were saying, this lack of elders, that young boys are looking to the media um, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. what they should be. you know:
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's just tremendous confusion about what constitutes genuine manhood. I mean, I, I do believe that there is some mystery to the, to the essence of manhood, but it doesn't mean that we have to be completely confused and have distortions regarding what, that, what, it, what it means to walk into that. Uh, and it, I, my best wisdom is it does have to be done in some sense of community. I mean, we watched uh, the boys in, in our program of Boys to Men, Um, get a lot clearer, a lot more grounded. I remember initially the social worker at the local high school said to me, you know, these are high-risk kids. I said, all right, I get it. Well, let's, let's give it a shot anyway. The more they were in the company of men the more I could notice a ease in their bodies, the settling in. I remember one kid, a uh, social worker, said to me one day, he can't sit in one seat for more than five seconds. I said, well, we'll see. Hmm. We had him sit between a 17-year-old male and a man. And w- when he jumped up at one point, the 17-year-old looked at him and said, what the heck are you doing? Sit hmm. down. Hmm. And he became relaxed for the next two or three years that he was with us. Wow. Yeah, there's something about needing to be in the company of male energy uh, that grounds a boy, that says you're welcome into the community of masculinity. And without that welcome, what what thrives is this tremendous distortion about am I a legitimate male?
2: Yes. And then comes the... uh how they copy these caricatures, like what you were talking about, about the sociopath or the Charlie Sheen, they copy what they think is supposed to be a cool man.
3: Right. That's right. And typically so many significant characteristics around sensitivity and heartfulness and empathy quite often. I'll have a man come to my office in his mid-40s and soon after the first visit be telling me about the shame he has. And I'm like, well, what shame are you talking about? Well, I'm not sure I'm a real man. And what he's referring to is the size of his heart. hmm Yeah, just an amazing, heartful man who believes that there must be something wrong with him.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and Because he's too sensitive and too caring?
3: Yeah, right, he's too sensitive and too caring. Now, it, it, that, that doesn't mean there isn't some work for him to do because typically there is some confusion about how to carry that heart in an empowered way because he may be leaning into being too victimized and too controlled by other people. Uh-huh. But that's a separate issue. The issue that I get concerned about is that he's calling his manhood into question because, his, because of the size of his heart. Mm -hmm. Like if he had a smaller heart, he'd be more of a man. That's the implication. Uh, So in my men's groups that we're constantly focused on, what the heck does it mean answering the question over We We don't talk about asking questions. We talk in those groups about living questions and living the questions of what is a whole man? What does it mean to own your body, your mind, your heart, your soul? what is a home man and and living that question constantly
2: yes yes absolutely um, and you know of course then there's all, all the bullying that goes on and mm-hmm. um as far i mean be, you know it kind of it multiplies because uh, especially in places like high schools or um even colleges um you know where, where there's all this competition and 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 a whole mass of confused, um, you know, boys essentially. Right. Um, right. So when they're not secure in their own manhood or their own identity, then one of their defenses is to just bully um, other guys, you know, so that they can try to feel. um right. That they are the man.
3: Yeah, they're, run, they're going to run a high risk of uh, abusive acts of power. They, uh, someone called me last week from Boston wanting me to come up and talk about the increase of rape on college campuses. And one of the things I was thinking about, if I'm going to give that talk, I'm going to talk about, we're not talking mostly about something that's sexual. We're mostly talking about an abuse of power. Mm-hmm. And again, we're back to just how confused young men are about what does constitute authentic power—power power that truly is sustainable and is in my behalf, and is in—and and when I enact it, is in behalf of people that I love and care for.
2: Yes, and that's not really shown as being a man. No, um, it's not that no. is shown as being too soft, or that's right. you know. Yeah. Uh, what's all this sensitivity, why do you have to, you know, um, and then, then, of course, um, being bullied for being gay. <laughs> you can't, if you're, sure, if
3: you're sure. thinking
2: about those kinds of things, you must be gay.
3: <laughs> That's right. And I'm remembering uh, when I've gotten heavily involved in the men's movement back in the early 90s, late 80s, I mean, those early gatherings of men were only focused on loss. 80, 90, 100, 150 men would gather, and the only theme for the weekend would be, what are your losses? Hmm. And what what the leaders knew was that the beginning place of getting right-sized with personal empowerment means having to identify the loss and uh, accept the grief that's associated with the loss.
2: Hmm. And what kinds of losses did they talk about?
3: Oh, all kinds. I mean, losses from childhood of fathers uh, leaving the family, losses they experienced in in war situations, losses of women they loved, and a topic that men often won't talk about, they began talking about, losses of of an aborted child Mm. that men typically Mm. don't talk about.
4: Yeah. Hmm.
3: And that, that in my mind, was a great beginning place. I noticed that the men who participated in those gatherings were welcoming back their heartfulness in an empowered way. They weren't defining themselves as wimpy or too fragile or broken. They were defining themselves as real men who are now learning to carry loss in a creative way. Hmm.
2: Wow. We need more of that. Well, I mean, I guess that's what you're doing, but we need more of you. (laughs) We need to take another break. Also, we will be back with my guest, Dr. Paul Dunyon. He is the author of Dare to Grow Up and The Path of the Novice Mystic. And we're talking about the betrayal of manhood today on Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. So stay tuned.
5: Talk, talk, talk.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about the betrayal of manhood, Uh, boys will be boys, and so on, with my guest, Dr. Paul Dunyon. He's the author of Dare to Grow Up, and the path of the novice mystic, and um, some other books that you'll be able to find, and when I give you his uh, contact info um, before the well or during the break, <laughs> we were talking about um, one of his other pet topics in in connection to the betrayal of manhood, which is the emotional isolation of men. So, Paul, what have you been finding?
3: Well, that typically. Males don't know that they're emotionally isolated. It's it's been it's been ascribed to maleness as almost uh, natural and appropriate. Um, I, I was thinking of this BMW commercial, and one of the it was on a local radio station a couple of years ago. And one of the lines in the commercial was, uh, "When you're behind the wheel, you'll finally be in that place by yourself." where you feel most comfortable to be who you truly are. Huh? It's like wait, like wait a minute. Yeah,
2: what was the what's that? <laughs> right. Yeah.
3: Meaning meaning the place where you're going to feel best about yourself is when you're totally isolated.
2: And when you're driving whatever it is this male phallic symbol. <laughs>
3: right, when you're driving this power.
2: So, right.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And so to introduce that to men, the whole notion that you might be emotionally isolated, and let's talk about what it means. It means typically that, For this happened to me actually working with a young man a week ago. I said to him, do you have any friends? He said, he paused. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, you have a best friend? I think so. He said, yeah. I said, does he know you? The pause was longer. Mm. And he said, not really. That's not an unusual response to my question. Many, many, many males, when in an honest moment, will report that no one knows them. Yes. That's a big deal.
2: Yes, Um, and of course, it's it's much harder to deal with some of the things that we've been talking about um, on your own.
3: Right, Uh, almost impossible.
2: And when you're afraid to let your guard down and tell people you have these insecurities or you're wondering about all these things and afraid of, like, showing that you're less of a man than they are, kind of, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, Yeah, I, for the book that I was telling you about, the bad girls book, I interviewed over 100 men who had been in relationships with bad girls, all the 12 different types.
4: Yeah.
2: And um, so... For like three and four hours, I mean, once they started talking, they didn't want to stop, and I didn't want them to stop, but it was just amazing how they had been holding all of this stuff in, Mm -hmm. Um, all of the memories. I mean, women um, would be so shocked. It was, I was surprised at how deeply, uh, and I've been, you know, treating patients, male patients as well as female patients for years, and yet... it was amazing how how much they remembered of the hurt. You know the different kinds of what the woman was wearing when she said right. what when she broke yep. up with him when she you yep. know she told him this which made him think that she meant this which I, I mean it was just on and on and on yep. and 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 then they would say that they had never told anybody these things and things that were obviously bottled up and hurting them for yep. years.
3: Yeah. And I think the real danger is that once a young man, or even a teenager, defines himself as not able to be a real male if he discloses those kinds of vulnerabilities like hurt, what he begins to do, I think, is move into really significant repression of those experiences. So now he doesn't know who he is. Yes. So now he doesn't have to worry about an unfortunate disclosure. Because he he's not. They're not accessible to him anymore.
2: Mm, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, the bravado first for other people, and then you kind of lose you lose yourself in it. Yes.
3: Yeah, I'm getting. Yeah, the male he gets lost in a provisional person, what I call a provisional personality.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Whatever, whatever the situation seems to be calling for, uh, he, he he delivers as opposed to moving towards something that might be authentic.
2: Yes, and, and sort of these temporary immediate fixes you know, that aren't connected to the past and won't have any connection to the future, but it's just kind of like these, uh, these temporary moves to just get through each, each minute.
3: Yes, to get through each minute and not have my male identity jeopardized. Right. That's such a big deal. I mean I've almost never experienced that with females that I've worked with. They don't come in here telling me they're worried about whether they're a woman.
4: Hmm.
2: I mean
3: they worry about other things but not their not their female identity.
2: Well, but they worry about whether they're a pretty enough woman or a sexy oh, enough yeah. woman That's or right.
3: a sure. Yeah, but not yes. the essential identity. Yes they, don't, yes, they don't have that crisis as a rule, unless they have a gender. uh yes. unless they have a gender identity crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Specific to them. Yeah.
2: Well, um, we're we're coming up on the end of our time. This has been really fascinating, and I want to make sure that there's enough time to uh, to give people your information. Um, first of all, your website, um, which is. <laughs> which is very, has a wealth of of material and um, it's called, it's pauldunyon.com which is Paul, P-A-U-L, Dunyon, D-U-N-I-O-N dot com. And um, again, maybe you could just briefly um, give a little summary of the Dare to Grow Up and the Path of the Novice Mystic.
3: Yeah, the Dare to Grow Up book really talks about a lot of these cultural challenges. How, to, what are cultural impediments to personal maturation? And how to overcome them. The Path of the Novice Mystic is really about honoring what in, uh, taking on the, the paradigm that indigenous folks have used when they initiate young people, which is the, anthropologists call it the initiation into the Mysterium Tremendum which is simply Latin for the great mystery. And the unfortunate piece is we don't welcome young people into the great mystery. We actually tell them if they get drive the right automobile, buy the right products, get the right education, uh, they can demystify life and make it uh, secure. Um, yes, <laughs> which, which is which is an illusion.
2: Have the right credit score. Have the right credit cards.
3: That's right.
2: I mean, it's ridiculous. It's it just is, gotten so yeah. off the beaten track of yeah. of anything um, more profound.
3: Right. I once spoke to a shaman from Western Africa. I said, "How do you folks see us?"
4: Mm-hmm.
2: He
3: giggled and he said, "As teenagers." Huh. Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, and of course now, when when there are things going on in the world like the recession, or at least in America, like the recession, mm-hmm. um, and and the, some of these other things, these crutches are taken away.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, we're we're lost. We don't feel. You know, we're, we get depressed.
3: That's right. There's no ground. There's there's no place to hold on to something more sustainable.
2: Yes, even relationships.
3: So, Even, yep.
2: You know, with yep. texting and everything, we've given up having real look-each-other-in-the-eye look relationships.
3: <laughs> yeah. In fact, I once heard a gentleman from uh, South America say to me when he visited, I think you people want to communicate a lot with one another, but from a distance. Mm. It's like, you're right.
2: Yes, because people feel so hurt. They, I mean, I think that that's a big part of it, retreating into... Uh, communication where you can have you can put some distance you you can it doesn't hurt so much if you know the person is telling you something that you don't want to hear
3: right i can diminish my sense of presence
2: right right well um i hope that do you have plans to or have you are you working on things bringing this more well of course your books but um, anything else to bring this more to a national scale, well, you know, some not, of the mentoring that you're doing?
3: Well, the only thing I've done lately in September, actually, I started a mystery school uh, to promote you know, some of these focuses we're talking about. Mm. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's only two months old, but uh, mm. I have a lot of hope for the growth of that.
2: So like what you were talking about at the beginning, about initiation,
3: yeah into the mysteries mm-hmm. and learning to let go of the the illusions that we've been asked to adopt for security.
2: Mhm. Yeah. Well, there certainly is a great need for all of this more than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I certainly wish you well on all of it. I thank you for being on the show and giving us uh some of your wisdom and again I want to tell people the website to go to for more. It's pauldunyon.com, which is T-A-U-L-D-U-N-I-O-N.com. Paul, thank you again for being on Dr. Carol's Couch, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host,
3: Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thanks, Carol.
1: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.